everything is at stake in the midterm elections, which is why it is so important to be informed. Fortunately, the podcast Thinking Cap is here to help. You might have heard us feature it on our show, but as a refresher, Thinking Cap covers major issues at the intersection of activism, race, policy, and politics, featuring the nation's top progressive leaders. And they've been a reliably excellent source for me ever since I found them. Subscribe to Thinking Cap on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about some of the various ways our election system is vulnerable to tampering and hacking and how it poses a threat to our democracy, whether any tampering actually occurs or not. Today's clips come from The Bradcast, Moment of Clarity, The Tom Hartman Program, and The Weeds. The voting hacking village, according to its organizers, had an exciting three days at DEFCON 26 in Las Vegas this past weekend. DEFCON is the largest hacking conference in the world, bringing together a wide range of hackers, corporate IT professionals, policymakers, and others interested in computer security and related issues. The voting village at DEFCON, which made a huge splash in its debut last year when pretty much every voting system they made available to hackers was penetrated within minutes of opening its doors. Uh, that voting village is now in its second year and addresses election security issues by inviting in t- attendees to study and identify vulnerabilities in election equipment used around the United States as well as other nations. Among the high-ranking elected and intelligence community officials attending this year was Rob Joyce, a senior leader at the NSA and a former Trump White House cyber czar. Joyce lauded the efforts of those uh, gathered there, saying in a statement published by the Voting Village organizers, quote, Believe me, there are people who are going to attempt to find flaws in those election machines, whether we do it here publicly or not. So I think it's much more important that we get out, look at those things and pull on it, he said. Not everyone was as delighted about the effort, including the nation's largest private voting machine company, the vendor named Election Software and Systems, Inc., they're uh, better known as ESNS. They supply about 40% of the voting, voter registration, and vote tabulation systems to public election jurisdictions around the nation. The company sent an email to their election official customers just before the event, warning them not to pay too much attention to whatever happens this year at DEFCON's Voting Village because they argued uh, the Voting Village ignores the physical security that the company imagines voting systems actually have when they're deployed around the country. They also made some vague legal threats against the longtime computer scientists and independent voting system experts who organized the event. For their part, the organizers responded in a statement saying that ESNS's unclear comments and threats toward the voting village seem to be designed to create questions and cast doubt in the minds of researchers and election officials, discouraging them from pursuing these vital lines of inquiry. The organizers said at a time when there is significant concern about the integrity of our election system, the public needs now more than ever to know that election equipment has been rigorously evaluated and that vulnerabilities are not just being swept under the rug. 
Well, over the course of the uh, three days, thousands of hackers, over uh, 100 election officials, and about 50 children helped to identify and exploit various vulnerabilities within the election ecosystem. The voting village was dramatically expanded this year after the huge splash it made last year, bringing so many of the security warnings we have been yelling and screaming about for about 15 years to a much broader uh, audience that was finally recognized by many in the corporate media. The expansions this year included not only more voting machines, but also end-to-end voting infrastructure, including a voter registration database and election results reporting websites. This year's Voting Village featured hands-on experience with at least nine different types of voting equipment, including voting machines, electronic poll book systems, and election-related security appliances, almost all of which are in use in elections today and will once again be used for the crucial 2018 midterms across the country. The Voting Village had participants find or replicate vulnerabilities ranging from passwords stored on the machines with no encryption at all to buffer overflows in critical input uh, routines, which can essentially scramble data in in any manner of ways uh, which may or may not be noticed by election officials and private vendors who program and service these machines. Specific hacks that participants were able to pull off this year include hacking a voting machine to play GIFs and music, the discovery of almost 2,000 files, including MP3s of Chinese pop songs hidden among the operating system files of one uh, uh, voting machine, hacking a uh, mock election so that an unlisted candidate received the most votes, hacking an email ballot so that the recorded vote was different from what was selected and emailed, and an 11-year-old hacking An 11-year-old child hacked a replica Secretary of State website within 10 minutes. I wanted to get your thoughts on what's happened recently with the Department of Homeland Security designating the voting system part of our critical infrastructure, which I think to the untrained eye sounds good. Oh, that sounds like it'll be taken care of better. But it really kind of means that the federal government can now take over and keep secret all of our election mechanics, the code, the counting. Your thoughts? Yes, absolutely. So uh, one of the reasons why I'm here, Lee, talking with you today is because we want, uh, I'm out here pitching for 40,000 citizens to form small groups in their election jurisdictions and occupy your elections. Because yes, we think a lot of stuff is going to go underground and be off limits to election integrity activists, to, you know, uh, audit monitors, and we're really worried about it. So we really, there are over 8,000 election jurisdictions in America, and we need a small group of people to jump 
up to this uh, mm-hmm. to this call and you know form these small groups and get in there and start to know your election mechanics and the processes, what machines you use, uh, you know get to know your mm-hmm. election officials and you know and get involved. It's amazing how much if you just put that foot in the door, right? Just get yeah. that foot yeah, in the door. Yeah. 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 I, I yes. want. I want to. In, so, a minute, in a minute, I want to get to more uh, which uh, those groups are and how people can do that. Uh, first, I wanted to ask you about the, a lot of money has been allotted to the states through the Help America Vote Act to upgrade our systems because many states are, you know, voting on computers that would make a speak and spell look like a technological marvel. Where do you think that money should go? Absolutely. So there's about $380 million coming down to the states. It's a little over $7 million per state, but they're giving more to populous states. And um, there are states that have to replace their uh, paperless electronic machines, what we call push and pray. You know, get rid of those. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then we wanted a, a lot of it to go to verifiable audits. So voter verified paper ballots is absolutely a must. Then um, then verifiable audits that are transparent and observable by, you know, election integrity groups. These are really, really important. And then, of course, uh, there's, you know, they're going to use some of the money for cybersecurity you know, at the voter databases mm-hmm. and, you know, to harden their um, their websites and their software. So that's that's a good idea, too, because somebody hacked in to quite a few election jurisdictions and tried to at least look at some voter database. So I think that's a good idea as well. But we definitely want voter verified paper ballots and verifiable transparent, observable audits. And they come in a lot of different varieties. So Yeah, you know, it, it seems like for everything we know that went wrong in this last election, you know, th- there was no, the, the, the hack you're speaking of, even that was of publicly available uh, voter information, and it was just scanning of websites. It sounds like almost nothing. But the actual uh, fraud, you know, and, and, and miscounting, like you talk about at the audit, uh, that we saw... It, 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 it's not, they're not dealing with any of it. They're not dealing with the actual problems in our voting system. It, it's totally outrageous. Um, I know that you're, as you just said, a fan of getting to paper ballots that are then uh, digitally scanned. I think some people say yes. that you, once you digitally scan the ballot, you lose control of the process because n- now who knows how it's actually being counted. Uh, can, you, can you talk a little about that? Absolutely, for sure. So all of the electronic voting machines, all of the digital scanners, they can all be hacked. If there are insiders within election jurisdictions, and we think there are, then, um, then it can be hacked. And so we, you know, we want that hard record, that paper ballot. We do want them digitally, digitally scanned so that they uh, form a uh, ballot image. But you can't stop there, okay? And a lot of activists are talking about publishing the ballot images. This is great, but you can't stop there. You got to be pulling some of those paper ballots uh, um, by random and, and counting them. We need actual audits on the paper ballots and then comparing those to the digital scans so that we know that they're not being, um, they're, the digital scans are not being manipulated as well. So it's lawsuits, a whole process. There, there's lawsuits going right now about uh, those, those ballot images being publicly available, right? 
Right. That's exactly right. Most of the lawsuits are just uh, save them. Save them and treat them as election material because on fe- in federal elections they have to save all election material for 22 months. So uh, some of the some of the lawsuits are just save it, treat those ballot images like um, like election material, and then like I said, we need this army of activists to go in there and then push to get these ballot images um, you know uh, published. So crowdsourcing the count. But even that will not be enough. We need those. A lot of um, activists are moving towards risk-limiting audits where you're pulling at random from a pool of all the ballots, no ballots left out. Okay, they love to have special piles of ballots, right? Yeah, yeah. We got the early voting, we got the you know election day, we got provisionals, we got vote by mail. So a random choice of all of the ballots, and then um, you're pulling some of them, and you're actually counting the paper ballots and comparing those paper ballots to the published um, ballot images. That's that's where we need to go, and we're not there. Yeah, we are not there across America. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know that in a lot of America, at least 50% of it, uh, these ballot images are already taken by the machine, but uh, the, the, the lawmakers, the officials, whoever it is, is deciding to, you know, either delete them or keep them hidden forever, which is the opposite of what should be happening. Those ballot images should be public property. So what is it people can do to make sure we get legit elections? Because I think a lot of people, and, and I used to be this way too, think, well, monitoring elections or election audits is something done by professionals. They're trained. They, you know, who knows? Maybe they went to school for it. I'm just a little old bus driver, a little old soccer mom. I couldn't possibly be involved in that process. So, so talk about that. Yes, you can. You can be. We have retired teachers. We have, uh, we're, we are not heavy duty, you know, computer scientist experts here. Our group is just a group of citizens that got their foot in the door. And, um, and, but you do need to know what you're looking at for sure. So there are a few things that we do recommend. So yeah, gather at least I, I'm, I'm hoping that we can uh, stimulate five citizens in each election jurisdiction to gather together and inform yourself. Um, one of the books that we recommend is Code Red by Jonathan Simon. And this is an excellent computerized election theft in the new American century. Excellent. And then um, Democracy Lost, the report by Election Justice USA about the Democratic primaries and all of the election fraud that occurred there, too. And then there's a, a gentleman, uh, Dr. Alex Halderman from University of Michigan. He's a, got a lot of short YouTubes up on uh, the Internet, and you can watch him. He's excellent on computerized election fraud and making it really simple. So just a little bit of background, okay? And then you would need to know what kind of machines that you use, what election machinery do you have, and verifiedvoting.org is the place to go for that information. Also, you need to know what audits, what kind of audits you have. Lots of states have audits, but lots of the audits are what Bev Harris calls fraudits, okay? So you need to know what those are as well. 
So there's a little background that you'll have to do. We do recommend that you reach out to, there are some election integrity groups in different areas around uh, the country. And um, Indivisible is kind of a little interested in this issue. Common Cause, Public Citizen, uh, they're very interested in this issue. And they put up a website called secureourvote.us. Okay. Secureourvote.us. And they've been having um, webinars. And mm-hmm. those webinars are on their resource pages. And you can go through those. They're not very long at all. And you can really come up to speed pretty quickly. And uh, They've had excellent guests on their webinars. And so that is really helpful. So secureourvote.us. You can go to our site, Clean Count Cook County. Clean yeah. count cookcounty.org. Clean count, and we've Cook got a County. bunch of re- Yep. Uh, and, what and, we and want, right? Sorry, and you were you were saying you have a bunch of a bunch of resources there. That, that that's good to hear too. Um, but these these right. audits, a lot a lot of people don't realize that these are our elections. These elections are not owned by the ruling elite or by the corporatocracy. And these audits are you know publicly most places you're you're allowed as a citizen to go and view the audit as a witness. And and a lot of people don't realize that we are supposed to be part of this process. And they would be more than happy if Absolutely. we weren't. Absolutely. There's no question about it. So citizen groups, uh, sometimes there's small hurdles that you have to go over. You have to uh, register at your state board of elections or at your secretary of states. But, fig- you know, figure those out. And those are all every state has their own laws. Right. And um, so you can uh, you can go in. You can train poll watchers for Election Day. We definitely recommend that to learn to see how the um, the elections are being managed on Election Day. And then the audits, the post-election audits, are really important to go in and observe. So we are hoping that this army, so I'm talking about like 40,000 activists, come on, come on out. And we want you to go in in 2016 or 2018, excuse me, and, you know, learn about um, your elections before and then go in and observe the audits, at least observe the audits. So 2018, um, there's things that you will see for sure and uh, reach out to your allies right in your area. The League of Women Voters is another ally. So kind of start gathering folks together, educating yourself and plan to go in and um, either be poll watchers, election judges, okay? You can uh, volunteer to be an election judge. And as you educate yourself, know your rights because a lot of these, you see time after time, these officials saying, oh no, you're not allowed to view it or oh no, you're not allowed to be in that room. And legally, actually you are. You are allowed to view it. And it's it's illegal for them to cover it up. And they either don't know that or they don't care because they don't think anyone's going to call them on it. But Laura Chamberlain, thank you so much for your work. Uh, I strongly recommend people visit the websites you listed and uh, keep fighting. Let's take our elections back. This is it, our very last push, our last chance to take action to help flip the House to democratic control and regain some degree of balance in the government. A democratically controlled House means many strong progressives will sit as the heads of many powerful congressional oversight committees, and every phone bank call made, every door knocked, and every vote cast for any House and Senate Democrat is a vote for Democrats with subpoena power. Swing Left is helping organize volunteers to win as many of this year's swing elections as possible. 
possible. When you join at swingleft.org left, you'll be immediately connected with other volunteers in your area who are working to win the race in a nearby swing district. You'll find out where and how you can make the most impact on flipping the house starting right now. If not us, then who? And if not now, then when? So get fired up, get off the couch, and volunteer. Join Swing Left to find your nearest swing district and take action now. Sign up now at swingleft.org slash left. for our final installment of the Midterms Minute. We hope you found value in these segments, even if hearing them simply kept the midterms at the top of your mind for the last four months. There are just a few more days to go before the election. You may be thinking that there isn't much you can do at this point to make a difference, but you'd be wrong. There's still plenty of time to donate, phone bank, volunteer, and talk to your friends and family about voting and getting engaged. Check out our previous segment for a list of four things you can do to make a difference and links to resources. This week, the DCCC announced its six red alert house races that need a big final show of support to finish strong. Four of these races are currently rated as toss-ups by Cook Political Report. Kristen Carlson is running in Florida's 15th district, which encompasses two incredibly expensive media markets. This is down to a one-point toss-up race. Sean Caston is running in Illinois' 6th district and is tied in a head-to-head contest despite a $2 million effort by Paul Ryan's Super PAC and even more from the Koch brothers to drag him down. Brandon Kelly is running in Illinois' 12th district, which is a traditional swing district where Obama and Tammy Duckworth both won, but the race is leaning Republican at the moment. Andy Kim is running in New Jersey's 3rd district against the wealthiest member of the New Jersey delegation who is injecting massive personal money into his campaign to try to win this toss-up race. Lizzie Pennell Fletcher is running in Texas's 7th district, where the NRCC and Paul Ryan Super PAC have already spent over a million dollars for her opponent in one of the top 10 most expensive media markets in the country. This is a toss-up race. Colin Allred is running in Texas's 32nd district, where more Republican money has been spent than almost every other House race this year. It's still a toss-up. You can donate or learn other ways to help these candidates by going to redtoblue.dccc.org. Of course, information for all of the battleground races and ways to get involved can be found at the Midterms Minute HQ at bestoftheleft.com slash midterms. And to close out our last Midterms Minute of 2018, we're leaving you with a passage from progressive pastor John Pavlovitz's article entitled, You Can't Change Hatred, But You Can Outvote It. If their consciences and compassion and reason have not been accessed and unearthed by now, I'm concerned those things will never be forthcoming. And since these people will not be moved, the rest of us need to move together. Democrat, Republican, and Independent, the deeply devout, the passionately irreligious, people of every pigmentation and persuasion. We need to move in concert to affirm our shared regard for one another and to vote to restore balance in something we all love that is teetering wildly. This isn't a battle to change the minds of the few who refuse to be changed. That horse is dead. It also isn't a test to see if we can manufacture the same hatred and vitriol for them as they dispense towards us. This is a golden moment for the vast, sprawling army of good people who believe in the beauty of diversity and in a fully accessible America to speak unequivocally on our social media profiles, at family gatherings, in our church meetings, and most of all, in the voting booth. We don't need to convince or coddle or win over hatred, and we don't need to outdo it either. We need to outnumber it. We need to outlast it. We need to outlove it. We need to outvote it.
there is an upside to this whole Sturm and Drang around uh, the possibility that Russia has, quote, hacked our election. And I think that there are considerable upsides to it, actually. I think the principal one is that it is allowing us to have a conversation that, frankly, the Democratic Party has not allowed us to have since 2002, or arguably even before that. But it was, you'll recall in 2000, when the election in Florida went south, the real reason why George W. Bush got within 500 votes of Al Gore to win when all the exit polls and everything else showed that Al Gore was easily going to win Florida. The real reason that George W. Bush got, you know, close enough that the Supreme Court could take the presidency away from 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 Al Gore was that Jeb Bush, his brother, had ordered Catherine Harris, the secretary of state, to remove something on the order of 54,000 African-Americans, mostly African-Americans, from the voting rolls in that state. Now, this is a process that is continuing across the United States on a regular basis. And this is this is like, you know, seriously dangerous stuff. The 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 way that, uh, you know, our our election has been hacked. There's a piece in today's National Post by Sari Horowitz or Horowitz. Uh, the head, the headline pretty much says it all. Justice Department reverses position to support Ohio purging inactive voters in high-profile cases. The state of Ohio, under John Kasich, wants to throw a whole bunch of people off the voting rolls. Why? Because they mailed letters to them, and those people didn't send the letters back. Now, this used to be called caging, and the Republican Party used to operate under a court order forbidding them from doing it. Because the fact of the matter is, most of us, if we get something in the mail that looks like it's you know junk mail, even from the government, we don't respond to it. And in particular, minority populations, people who are outside the United States, that would be active duty military mostly. Very poor people, particularly if they're if they're using, you know, a collective mailbox or a post office box. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people don't necessarily always get their mail or when they do, they're not inclined to respond to it. So the Republicans know that caging this this practice of mailing out things to registered voters particularly in poor areas, particularly in black areas, particularly in urban areas, particularly elderly people and particularly students, they know that mailing these things out to these people, you know, they're going to get a high rate of returns as undeliverable. It doesn't mean the people are dead. It doesn't mean that they've moved. It means that, you know, it's just the nature of their lives, right? It's just like people who live in cities where they've never had to own a car are less likely to have a driver's license. So here you've got Ohio trying to purge the vote and now and the Justice Department under Obama, the Obama Justice Department have been saying, no, you may not purge your voter rolls. You know, at least on this basis, you have to demonstrate that these people have left the state, not guess that they've left the state because they're not replying to your junk mail. But now the official Trump Justice Department position is, uh, you know, go ahead. Ohio, John Kasich, yeah, throw them off the voting rolls especially in those big cities where you've got a lot of black people. Throw them off the voting rolls. Come on, do it. This is, I mean, this has been the Republican position since the 50s. And they're going to continue with this. But it goes beyond that. What we saw in 2002 
as a result of the, the uh, where I started this whole riff was in 2000, right, with the election, uh, the selection of George W. Bush by the Supreme Court, which should have been the election of Al Gore. Because the, the, there was a wide variety of different voting systems in the state of Florida in the 2000 election, including the, the famous, you know, butterfly chads and, you know, or butterfly ballots that had chads that you couldn't push all the way through and all this. You know, there, there were some, some systems that didn't work all that well or that were terribly confusing. You had thousands and thousands of people in, in elderly Jewish communities who, uh, you know, many of them Holocaust survivors who voted for Pat Buchanan, who's about as close to a Nazi as you can get in American politics and get on the ballot for president, um, you know, told us that the system was either intentionally designed to mislead people and be confusing, which Republicans love, or just didn't work. So in 2002, we got this thing called the Help America Vote Act, which allocated around five or six billion federal dollars to give to the states to buy voting machines from a a small handful of companies that were connected to Republican politics. So let's give billions of dollars to Diebold and ES&S and all these other companies. And now the question is, you know, what's 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 going on with these voting machines because what we started seeing after 2002 and we started seeing it right away by the way was something called redshift in states using voting machines particularly those states using exclusively voting machines with no paper trail like georgia you started seeing while the exit polls were saying democrats were winning the electronic voting machines were saying no republicans are winning in other words the vote was shifting to the red into the into the into the Republican side. And a lot of us, I mean, I started writing about this in 2002. And you can find the articles I was writing for Common Dreams back at the time, and you can find those articles online. And I was not alone in this. Bev Harris had started Black Box Voting, Brad Friedman doing brilliant work at bradblog.com, as he's been doing for years and years all over this stuff. Greg Palast writing about it. You can read it at gregpalast.com. Greg Powell's writing books about it, doing it. He, I mean, Greg Powell was the one who broke open the story when he was reporting for the BBC about how the uh, about how the uh, uh, you know the, the the Jeb Bush administration had thrown fifty four thousand African Americans out the voting rolls in Florida. He was the guy who broke that story. The whole world knew it. The BBC reported on it quite thoroughly. That report was never shown in the United States. No American media would pick it up after the election is mind-boggling we're not even going to quote the bbc but now it gets even worse now you've got a group of computer scientists who sat down and testified before congress and in other places this is uh, some footage from c-span talking about our vote and and you know what happened with the vote and how the vote how the vote went down and all this sort of thing here's the uh, here's the first clip i'm uh, uh, while he's talking i'll find the name of the guy it's not it's not on my one sheet we'll be right back here it is. here he is i know america's voting machines are vulnerable because my colleagues and i have hacked them repeatedly we've created attacks that can spread from machine to machine like a computer virus some say the fact that voting machines aren't directly connected to the internet makes them secure but unfortunately this is not true before every election they need to be programmed with races and candidates If Russia infiltrated these election management computers, it could have spread a vote-stealing attack to vast numbers of machines. I know America's voting machines are vulnerable because my... 
this was J. Alex Halderman, um, uh, and just started to repeat itself, I think, there. And, and this is where I started this thing out by saying, you know, if, if, there's any, if there's an upside to the whole Russia hysteria right now, it is this. It's that now we can have a conversation about how insecure our voting system is. Because I remember back in 2004 or six, I think it was 2006, there was a group of us, uh, talk show hosts, who came to Washington, D.C. to meet with some Democratic members of the House and Senate. Uh, in a little forum where we were just talking about the issues of the day and, you know, how do we get stuff out there and whatnot. And uh, a fairly high-profile Democrat said to us, said to me anyway, I think said in public to the whole group, the Democrats don't want to talk about the, the insecurity of electronic voting because it'll cause people to think that their vote might not be counted and therefore they won't show up to vote. And so the Democrats have been playing head in the sand here ever since 2002. And you talk to Democratic politicians and they will tell you off the record that they know that they've got a big problem, but they just haven't known what to do about it. How do you take this on without saying, hey, the Republicans are trying to steal the election? Keep in mind, Lyndon Johnson refused to out Richard Nixon's treason because he was afraid it would destroy the, the confidence of the American people in our voting system, in our electoral system. He thought it was best for the nation to go to his grave knowing that Richard Nixon had committed treason by collaborating with South Vietnam to postpone the peace process so that in 1968, Hubert Humphrey would not become president of the United States. The Democratic Party has a long tradition of being afraid, and it's not just the, you know, of being afraid to call out the Republican crimes. The same thing in, in, uh, in, the, in the 80s when Congress started investigating Iran-Contra. And they, they, they modified the law specifically to say you cannot look at anything that happened before 1981. In other words, you can't look at Reagan cutting a deal with the Iranians. So anyhow, that was the first clip. Here's the, here's the, the second part of this, um, uh, of this computer scientist. His name is J. Alex Halderman. Uh, he's the computer sci- the, a professor of computer science and the director of the Center for Computer S- Security. Here he is. We must start preparing now. First, we need to upgrade obsolete and vulnerable voting machines, such as paperless touchscreens, and replace them with optical scanners that count paper ballots. Second, we need to use the paper to make sure that the computer results are right. This is a common-sense quality control. Lastly, we need to harden our systems against sabotage and raise the bar for attacks of all sorts by conducting comprehensive threat assessments and applying cybersecurity best practices to the design of voting equipment and the management of elections. But if we fail to act, I think it's only a matter of time until a major election is disrupted or stolen in a cyber attack. See, and I'm, I'm saying that that's been going on since 2000, 2002 in a big way since 2004. And, but the Democratic Party has been afraid to talk about it because they don't want to call out the Republicans. And the Republicans, of course, just you know, make fun whenever the Democrats do talk about it. So now you can blame it on the Russians, right? It's like, hey, what the hell? You know, it allows us at least to have that conversation.
Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Arrett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use promo code LEFT. Joining us to catch up on all of this in Georgia and what it all means for the rest of the country to boot, less than 100 days now out from the crucial November 6th midterm election, is the executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance and a longtime Republican expert advocate for election integrity and free and fair elections, not to mention longtime friend of Bradblog.com and the Bradcast, Marilyn Marks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Thank you so much, Brad. Thanks for having me. You bet. I've got lots to talk with you about uh, today, as <laughs> yes. you can tell. Uh, yes. But let, let me start with uh, last week's GOP primary runoff in Georgia with the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, who you are suing, reportedly winning in this stunning upset. Kemp has repeatedly claimed that Georgia's 100% unverifiable Diebold touchscreen voting system is 100% secure. Now, setting aside the absurdity of that <laughs> remark, Marilyn, why wouldn't someone like Kemp, a Republican in this case, why wouldn't they be concerned about the fact that nobody can actually know if he was legitimately elected or not? Shouldn't that be a concern to <laughs> candidates? Well, Brad, I'm afraid that so many of our elected officials have the same view. Uh, hey, look, the system elected me. It must be good. That's good enough for them. But Brian Kemp has gone on as recently as I think it was Sunday night and then was um, uh, on the air yesterday morning in Atlanta in mm -hmm. the public radio station, the NPR affiliates, WABE has a report. You can pull it up online where he's declaring that, oh, the system is completely secure and the security is robust and it's fine and Everyone has great confidence in this. He goes on further to say in this interview, just the most absurd lie. He says the state law will not let him change to paper ballots. Yes. And although he would love to have verifiable paper trail on ballots, he just can't do it. That is just an absolute lie, and I hope that the press in Georgia will start challenging him on that. The law is as clear as it can be that... Uh, optical scan systems are uh, completely authorized, and in fact, he has certified an optical scan system for Georgia as had uh, Secretary Handel before mm -hmm. him, and they use it for their absentee ballots. Anyway, so I think that the question that you're asking is a very good one to ask. Why in the heck, when they've got a paper optical scan system at hand, authorized, owned, mm -hmm. sitting there ready to be used, 
will they not use it and instead say, oh, we can't. We have to use these unauditable electronic machines. So in other words, uh, there's still time. We're just under 100 days. Uh, there's nothing uh, time-wise and legal-wise, as far as you can tell, that would keep Brian Kemp from saying, you know what, we're not going to use these unverifiable touchscreen systems. We're going to use the same absentee hand-marked paper ballots in the polling place that we allow currently, and we have been allowing for years uh, for absentee voting. There's not a thing. And as you know, I've paid lawyers thousands and thousands of dollars to give me the right answer on this. And legally, there is absolutely nothing standing in his way. Um, as and common sense would tell us this, Brad, because of course he has he the secretary has the absolute discretion to decertify any system that he determines is unsafe. Well, obviously you have to have a backup system if the law is going to give you the um, the discretion to decertify an unsafe system. Mm-hmm. There's got to be some something else you can use. And, um, and in fact, he should be, he's abusing his discretion when he does not decertify this. Um, and the law, of course, does permit optical scan machines. Those machines are there. They're ready to use. They are cheaper to use, as you well know. Mm-hmm. Printing paper ballots um, and using them in the polling place, far cheaper than trying to set up those very labor-intensive uh, DRE machines, and uh, so they could actually save money. So, so there's no excuse for the fiscal conservatives who try to say, "Oh, that might cost more," as if cost should be the the primary uh, concern here. But if if it's the primary concern for anybody, it actually costs less. Costs less, exactly. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, the answer is right there in their hands. The question now becomes, why are they turning away from the easy? obvious, secure answer in insisting on an unverifiable system. I believe, Brad, that the other, you know, other places in the national press, like you, are going to start asking this question more and more. When you've got a solution and you can have a secure election, and when even Devin Nunes says you should ban paperless ballots, I guess you heard that the other day. I did. Uh, right wing uh, congressman from California, Devin Nunes, huge uh, Donald Trump supporter, uh, called for banning, uh, well, systems that do not at least uh, produce some form of paper ballot. Right. And and then we've had uh, DHS secretary mm-hmm. uh, say it's a national security concern. Of course, the bipartisan uh, Senate Intel Committee has said this. I mean, how many more authorities does Brian Kemp need? I guess he's going to need the court, and that's what we're about, and, as you know. And and I want to get to your uh, suit and and some more specifics on uh, what the DHS uh, is doing uh, on Tuesday. But this is uh, the point that you're making about using absentee ballot systems that already exist. Uh, this is true and could be done not only in the state of Georgia, correct? There are other systems, uh, other states where they use unverifiable touchscreen style systems statewide, like Louisiana and Delaware and New Jersey. And then there are other states like Pennsylvania, Texas, Ohio, where they use these touchscreen systems. All of them, all of them use paper absentee uh, systems, they could use those if they wanted to, if they were required to, if the citizens demanded it, they could all use them before this November. Could they not? Um, That's right, Brad, because um, they all own these optical scanning systems. Obviously, they're already certified. 
And um, Georgia has a, almost a surplus of these machines. They can be used with a central count if you don't want to put every single one in a, in a precinct. Mm-hmm. And I can understand that there, there might be a little bit of a hassle. It, it should be done. But still, there are plenty of these low-cost scanners, uh, used scanners that are sitting in warehouses. They're perfectly good old workhorses mm-hmm. that can be put to use. And as you've said many times on your shows, even if your optical scanners, um, you know, are not working well, you can still audit them, hand count. You've got a paper trail, and you can get to the correct count and know what the voter's intent is because you can keep hand counting until you get the right answer, now, which is obviously not available with your with your paperless machine. Right. And uh, by the way, it's not even available with our uh, hand-marked paper ballot systems that we continue to fight to actually count them. I mean, it's available, but we don't do it. We have these ballots that we don't bother to count. We never bothered right. to count the ballots for 2016, the presidential election. Have you, uh, are you aware of any effort, Marilyn Marks, around the country to either count those ballots from 2016 or at least preserve the 2016 ballots before they can be destroyed in dis- in uh, September of this year after the 22-month federal requirement for uh, retention of ballots and other materials before that um, ends. Brad, now that is one of my hot buttons. And, and let me just kind of tie this to what you were just talking about. Local citizens at their, their local county level mm-hmm. can both seek the retention of these documents that you're talking about and I'd like to get back to, as well as they can go, that's their first line of being able to get a secure election, is to go to their local county boards and say, look, you guys have the discretion to use paper ballots, and you should do it. Because, of course, all these county boards have that discretion, as they would have in a weather emergency, power outage, Mm -hmm. computer bug, Every county that I know of in the United States has the discretion to, you know, if the machines are not practical to use, to, to use paper ballots. Now getting, now the same thing goes for retaining the election records. If the press, if citizen audits were to go ahead and request these records under FOIA's public records request, mm-hmm. it would at least tie them up to preserve them. And this has been really one of my hot buttons, but I've not been able to find many people, Brad, of your mindset that say, wait a minute, shouldn't we at least be preserving the ballots, the electronic records, the logging records, mm-hmm. all of the the records that were used in the 2016 election? One, it was a historic election no matter what. And there are still questions around, of course, how far did the Russians or other nation states or other um, other bad actors get mm-hmm. into the system? If we don't know that, we certainly should be preserving the records to ultimately find out. And I fear that for many election officials in those swing states, that they are standing there over their records with a can of kerosene in one hand and a <laughs> book of matches in the other, um, just waiting for a month from now. Yep. And and just to repeat it, citizens can request that these uh, records be produced, these paper ballots where they exist be produced, uh, and such a, a record request would, I think, force uh, mm-hmm. the counties to not destroy them, at least until the records requests have been uh, settled for one way, uh, in one way or another. 
Um, and as you point out, uh, Marilyn, uh, you know, there has been a lot of debate. Uh, it seems to be building, frankly, in the last few weeks about whether votes were actually changed in the 2016 election. We've moved from uh, there was interference to, uh, you know, the, well, they tried to get into the voting systems, but they weren't successful to the fact that, uh, well, there's no evidence that votes were changed because we never actually looked at the actual evidence uh you know when we're seeing this not just from you know kirsten nielsen at the D, uh, dhs and from donald trump and republicans but actually from progressive journalists they've been making the same case oh no votes were changed but the fact is nobody actually knows that because nobody checked them so as a republican as someone who knows these systems very well and as a matter of fact as a former gop candidate in uh, in aspen colorado do you share the confidence in that claim that no voting results were actually changed in 2016? I have never had any confidence in that. Um, now, it's not to say that I believe that votes were changed, but I, I don't have any belief one way or the other because there is no evidence. How do these people make this claim when no one has looked yep. and no one has any evidence one way or the other? And as, as well, we know that these attacks from nation states can be very sophisticated and very hard to detect. So why would we think that anybody is going to just detect them from a distance and when, when it's not even been given a cursory look? So this nation deserves to know eventually whether or not election results were changed and the in preserving the records is the only way to do it. Brad, I would also make a point mm-hmm. as you, as you Get on your platform, and I hope you do. My my high horse is what you mean, but yeah, go ahead. To to try to get the press in particular um, to get these records preserved, there is no requirement. People need to understand there is no requirement that the the records be destroyed after 22 months. That is up to each um, Mm -hmm. election official in each county. Um, they can retain them as long as they want. There's, they can't destroy them before 22 months, although I fear some have. Mm-hmm. But, um, but if, if even local uh, citizens can convince their election officials not to destroy them, even that is they even that's progress. And, and you know it's important. Uh, I hope to do what I can, obviously, to uh, raise awareness, to get the press, and to get the citizenry going. You do a fantastic job of, of that, by the way, on Twitter uh, at Marilyn R Marks One, where people should follow you because it really is. Thanks. This is a group effort. We need not just Marilyn, not just me, not just a handful of others to speak out about this. We need everyone to be raising hell about it. We ran a really, really deep investigation into election security over at Vox. It was by uh, Benjamin Wolford, and the, the piece we'll put it in show notes, but it's called The Midterms Are Already Hacked. You Just Don't Know It Yet. And it is, I would say, one of the scariest pieces of reporting I've read in some time. He talked to over 100 people involved in either election administration, election security, election analysis. And what they told him was genuinely scary. I want to start us out by reading this one passage. 
because I think it frames a problem really well. He writes, the United States this November, it won't have one midterm election or even 50, but a number closer to 10,000. Elections, he's saying here, are, are locally administrated. And it's these local officials, not the NSA, the FBI, or the Department of Homeland Security, who are standing four square against cyber attackers in November. It's as if America's most ancient civilian office, the local election clerk, has become saddled with new and alien responsibilities tantamount to a military contractor. And now here's a quote. We are at a fundamental disadvantage because it's not a fair fight, says a big tech security expert who spoke on background. It's now every county versus the FSB, which is the acronym for Russia's version of the CIA. So that seems bad. That seems very bad. And I think one of the interesting things about this piece, which I highly recommend everyone go read, is how it talks about election vulnerabilities that fall into three broad camps, so to speak. So there is the targeting of individual campaigns through DDoS attacks and that kind of thing, email theft, meddling, the hacking of our national discourse, propaganda efforts, which I think is what a lot of people are most familiar with when we talk about the 2016 election and Russian interference. And that I think most concerning to me is the vulnerability of the technology itself that underlies the election infrastructure. And I think that that's been something that's been coming up a lot recently. Um, There was a Twitter thread that went around yesterday that was talking about how in Texas, apparently on some of the touchpad election devices, it was switching people's votes. People who had voted straight ticket, uh, this specific person had voted straight ticket Democrat. When they went back through their votes, they saw that their vote for Beto O'Rourke had been switched to a vote for Ted Cruz. And they talked to the elections office in Texas and Texas responded by saying, oh, you know, this has been happening for years. It's just, you know, you have to go back and check because this can happen all the time. And my first thought, you know, that doesn't sound at all reassuring. But the fact that because this is a local problem, these are local officials trying to deal with something that now takes on national importance. So there's this uh, line you hear sometimes when you worry about elections being hacked, which is that the unbelievable multiplicity of election administration in America is some kind of advantage because what folks will say is, look, you can't hack the American election. You can't hack the presidential election. You would have to hack all these different counties. And on the one hand, maybe that's somewhat reassuring because it would take more resources to do it. It's not like you could just find one vulnerability and exploit the whole thing. But on the other hand, like I think people need to think about this a little bit more. So it would not be hard for Russians or North Koreans or honestly just anyone, right, a group of effective hackers who just want to sow chaos to identify six midterm, six midterm House races that could flip the House or 12 or in a presidential election to log on to the upshot or log on to 538 and figure out what are a couple of counties in a couple of key states that could really change the outcome. And then let's say they don't even quite succeed. Let's just say they go in and they leave enough havoc in enough of them that and then leak it to the press such that all election results suddenly become contested, such that all the election results fall under doubt. I think people forget this, but there was a big argument about what Russia was trying to do in the 2016 election and what previously to succeeding beyond their wildest dreams and electing Vladimir Putin's best friend, Donald Trump, what they thought they were doing um, in America, which was not actually that they were going to hack the election and change who won. They didn't think they, they could do that. What they were going to do was sow chaos. What they were going to do was show that America's vaunted political system, its democracy, is not that democratic, it's not that trustworthy, it's not that safe, and they're going to turn us against each other by just 
throwing everything into doubt. And if you imagine this not as like a hacking operation, but as a dissension operation, like as a, as an operation to sow instability and chaos, it would not at all be hard to target a couple of the weakest and most critical county election systems. And whether or not you actually change the votes, you could certainly leave enough havoc to make people wonder if you had. And it, trying to imagine what the aftermath of that would be, it's not like we have strong procedures in this country. We don't have a procedure for rerunning an election because now we don't believe the outcome. We have no idea what would happen. And we're, we're not at, we're not even talking about this effectively. Right. And I think that there's something to be said about the notion that the goal was not inherently, you know, with Russian interference or with interference in general, the goal is not necessarily, like, ah, we want to elect a specific person. It is to put the entire electoral process under scrutiny and raise questions about whether or not your votes count. And I think that that goes to kind of the second part of those three broad camps in which our election vulnerabilities fall into, which is, you know, information operations. And the piece goes into how there's been trainings on based on mock scenarios, like a viral Facebook post that claims Latino voters are barred from voting that's being sent from a fake account mimicking the regional ACLU. And I think people who were deeply online in 2015, 2016, remember kind of the very viral Reddit created threads. And you know, obviously that's not Russian hackers, that's just people on Reddit or 4chan who are creating very, you know, posts that look like they're coming from the campaign of Hillary Clinton or the campaign of Donald Trump that say things like, we've got this, you don't need to vote or telling people that they can vote by text message. And then giving them a number and the number actually works. And it says, like, thank you for voting or something like that, which you oh, think so devious. Yeah, it's super devious. And for you and I, for majority of our listeners, they're thinking, you know, who would fall for that? But then, you know, someone, of course, did. And trying to take back those kinds of posts or trying to take back information is virtually impossible once it's out there. And so it's interesting that there has been some efforts made at conferences and by security experts and officials trying to figure out what to do about these kinds of online posts that are, are coming not necessarily from, you know, the FSB or from North Korea, but just from like the Internet itself. If we went back now and we could conclusively prove or let me even put it differently, if we could not conclusively disprove that the key places in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania that swung those states in defiance of polling and expectations were correctly decided. If there was evidence of some tampering and now you had Republican county election administrators saying, no, nothing happened. Don't worry about it. We've looked into it. And you had like Democratic um, experts saying, no, 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 this looks really wrong. Um, like we need to do audits. And I was saying, I'm sorry, we don't have paper ballots as a safeguard, which a lot of these machines don't. There's no way to do an audit. And so now you have an election that may no longer be legitimate. I mean, that kind of place, like that's where you can get into genuine civil violence, right? Because um, one side feels that another side is taking power, is basically mounting a coup. Um, that's where you can get into really bad things. And so I just, I, I feel like we... Even as we've had demonstrations of how badly this can go, even as we've had like this like klaxon warning going off in our ears now for years, 
I feel like we are really lacking in imagination about how bad this could get and how fast and like how good that would be for some of the people who would want it to be that way. I mean, a lot of other countries in the world, like what they would like is for America to be consumed by internal division. And like the really easy way to do that would be to delegitimize our political system at a time of very high polarization and very bitter competition. And like what this report is saying, like what this piece is saying, like what we know is it wouldn't be all that hard. And yet, are we treating this as an emergency? No, it's like a complete, like we know people are trying to do this. We see it coming. We know they've already tried to do it. We know Russia tried to hack into some things um, it, during the during the 2016 election, actual election systems. It doesn't look like they succeeded, but maybe who knows? Um, and we're not we're not doing nearly enough. There's this quote in here from a, a security expert at, at a big technology corporation. He says, on a scale of one to ten, with ten being Pentagon security measures, elections have moved from a two to a three. Like that's bad. That's very bad. We've just heard clips today, starting with the broadcast, discussing the results from the voting village at DEFCON 26. Lee Camp on Moment of Clarity spoke with Lori Chamberlain about many of the holes in our election system. The Tom Hartman program discussed how fear of Russia hacking our elections might be just what we needed to fix the problems that have been evident for decades. The broadcast talked with election integrity advocate Marilyn Marks about the need to make changes that will ensure the legitimacy of our elections. And finally, we just heard the weeds talking about how insecure elections can destabilize our democracy, whether there is any hacking or not. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips on election tampering, including a discussion about what happened to Trump's Election Integrity Commission after it shut down, and a conversation about what Trump officials are saying about Russian hacking of elections. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Aaron from Philly. I'm calling in with a response about the voting episode, um, voting rights episode. I had two thoughts about it. One, a response to the segment about whether voting should be made mandatory and the idea that that would help instill the idea that voting is a civic duty. It made me think of the other major civic duty that adults in America have, and that is jury duty. And what I think might actually make mandatory voting a good idea, not just to instill that concept in individuals that they need to get out and vote, but also because jury duty is mandatory, for the most part, you can ask for exemptions, but for the most part, you have to show up and go and serve if you're selected. There are also laws in place that say your employer cannot fire you or dock you pay or things like this because you had to go to jury duty. Like you, 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 Your employer can't retaliate against you for going to jury duty. If we put voting on the same level that you, know, you must go and vote, that might also be a lever against employers that we could employ to say, hey, this is a requirement. You cannot penalize your employees for taking the time to go and, and do it. 
just a thought. And for something that I'm doing to get out and, and help with the voting process, ever since I was in law school, I've been working with a local organization, and they're in cities all over the country, not just Philadelphia, where they get law students and attorneys to help do essentially poll observing, not in the partisan sense, but just going around and making sure polling stations are accessible, that if there's any problems with electioneering going on, you know, or voter intimidation going on outside the polling place, that we can help connect the poll workers with the correct officials, you know, the attorney general or the district attorney who's uh, taking care of things like that. So anybody out there who has legal credentials, I would encourage you to look into doing something like that. Um, takes me to parts of the city I would never see otherwise. And it's always nice to know that I'm helping my fellow citizens be able to get out and have their voices heard. As always, thanks for everything you do and stay awesome. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. As we move very, very quickly towards what is being touted by everybody as one of the most important elections in recent memory, I found myself thinking a lot about a episode you produced almost 10 years ago surrounding Barack Obama and the enthusiasm uh, that was spent really propagating him as a savior figure. This is not to besmirch or belittle what was said in that podcast. In fact, I would encourage all your listeners to go back into your archives and re-listen to many of the podcast episodes that you produced that year, 2008, because the passion, the vigor was very much alive. And this is something that the so-called progressive left is going to need going forward. I have stated many times before that we must have a multi-year strategy and plan in order to really turn this country around. And it must not be limited only to federal elections. It must include state and regional elections. This will entail us, this will uh, encourage us actually to form uh, unions of, of many different types to ensure that the legislative agenda, which proposes a new way of organizing society that we desire, that will actually help society, help the common good, help the common person, and in the ultimate irony, help the wealthy, although they don't believe that is true. Watch the wonderful documentary from 2006, The 1%, to understand what I'm talking about. But we'll have to do this, ultimately. We will have to do this. And so, as a bit of an encouraging word, allow me to offer this. One, if we don't gain both houses, if the Democrats, the progressives don't gain both houses, don't lose hope. Don't lose that energy. 
because the other side, and I'm not talking conservatives now, I'm talking the oligarchy, they're fighting. And they're fighting for their lives. Not their political lives, but their economic lives. They are ready to burn down the house in hopes of keeping the land. We need to understand this because the war waged on an intellectual level is going to increase after this election. I grew up in a very conservative, a very white conservative community. And what I learned from growing up in that community was this. Conservatives, white conservatives, take the charge of protecting the future so seriously that they will break the spirit of their own children to impose that heretical function onto them. And if they see that they can't break the spirit of their child, they'll kick them out the clan and with no remorse. I am not suggesting that this needs to be done by progressives or by us. I am only communicating a stark reality that many of you are not aware of. You do not understand when these people vote, when they speak, they're speaking from a place of longevity. They're not looking at the next election cycle. They're looking at the next generation. So too must be your mind. We have not educated ourselves to take control of the destiny of this country. And we have not done so because, as I've mentioned before, our parents have prepared us to be system managers. The system is dying. It's breaking down. It is now decomposing and taking us with it, encouraging us to disengage. If we are willing, then we are going to have to re-educate ourselves every year, every week, every month, every day to take control of the destiny of this country. And understand that with that comes certain consequences. Because you cannot be a system manager and the head of the system at the same time. If you are going to be the head of the system, you will not be a manager. You will be a controller. But if you are going to be a manager, then you will never be a controller. And this is a fundamental decision that we have to make. Conservatives understand they are not managers. They are controllers. Every person who is in the conservative movement, is in the conservative movement because they understand that whatever their space, they control that space. They are not a manager. We too must take that up as our call. Thank you very much, Jay. Keep up the good work. Peace be upon you all. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I want to wrap up the pro-choice litmus test conversation today. I didn't hear any responses to my question for a theory of change to back up the pro-choice litmus test advocacy side of the debate, Um, but it's not too late. If you still want to comment, please uh, send those in. Now, just for my last few cents to throw in on this topic, I think that 
it's important to recognize the nature of this debate is different depending on what level of politics you're talking about. Like having a litmus test for a Supreme Court nominee is obviously different than a potential candidate, which is also completely different from sort of a foot soldier party member who just wants to go be involved on the local level. And so, you know, m- most people immediately think of candidates, which is understandable. Um, but that, it's not actually where the discussion started. Uh, when I started the discussion, I was referencing an episode of the daily called the battle for Missouri parts one and two. And the story hinged on language that a pro-life party member, not a candidate, just a party member suggested be added to the state party platform because although she strongly supported the principles of the Democratic Party broadly, she felt like a second-class citizen based on her pro-life beliefs. And so here's just real quick what she wrote. One of the main things we were doing at that meeting was to vote on the platform. And and then it was Joan's turn. I went ahead with my amendment. She walks up and takes the podium. And then she starts reading her proposal. We respect the conscience of each Missourian and recognize the members of our party who have deeply held and sometimes differing positions on issues of personal conscience, such as abortion. We recognize the diversity of views as a source of strength and welcome into our ranks all Missourians who may hold differing positions on this issue. Basically, we're pro-choice, our party. But if you're pro-life, come on in. You're welcome to. That's what she was saying. So at first that measure passed, but there was a backlash and it was quickly repealed. And and look, like you might think that a person with pro-life beliefs should be considered a second-class citizen among Democrats. We heard arguments for why that should be the case. Um, But here's what I want. Uh, I want for abortions to be available in every town, in every state, without any undue regulation, tampering, or stigma. And I want them all paid for by a universal health care system. And if you agree with that or something close to that, all I ask is that you make your decision about the litmus test with that ultimate end goal as your North Star and be able to back up your decision with an argument for why you think your choice on the litmus test question helps get the country closer to that ultimate end. And if I were in one of those party meetings and I had a chance to speak, that is what I would say. But I would also abstain from the vote and encourage anyone not capable of becoming pregnant to also abstain. And I I think that people like me have every right to voice our opinions when it comes time to vote and turn opinions into policies. I think it, it gets a lot murkier on a topic like this and that ultimately people capable of becoming pregnant should have the final say on how their organizations are run. Now, last thought, a slightly different topic. I started thinking about the outline for this discussion before it even had anything to do with abortion. That's just sort of what filled in the details. What got me started on this path was the idea of how our country functions more similarly to a parliamentary system than I had ever thought before. I just heard a commentator recently say sort of offhandedly that, you know, we do have more than two parties in this country, just like a parliamentary system. We just don't call them that. Instead, we call them congressional caucuses or you know, d- different branches of th- the parties that we have. And when I heard it framed that way, it honestly made me feel better about politics. You know, on a psychological level, I'm sure there is some deep-seated, hard wiring left over from evolution about enforcing conformity within your own in-groups. So, you know, if I were to think of the Democratic Party 
as, as a whole, as my in-group, then conservative Democrats and pro-life Democrats and corporate Democrats, etc., would all set off my in-group alarm bells. But if I only think of, for instance, like the Progressive Caucus as my in-group, then I don't have that same lizard brain feeling of wanting to enforce conformity across the entire Democratic Party, which is completely impossible anyway, so it's not really worth spending a lot of mental energy wishing for. So simply changing the way I think of the parties and caucuses, in-groups and out-groups, really helped me feel better just on a personal level about this, you know, frustrating nature of the push and pull between all of these factions, always in tension with each other, always fighting for power and influence. So my ultimate goal was just to share that insight with you. And I thought it'd be more fun to do it in sort of a conversational way. And and then the, the abortion topic came up and I thought, oh, this could, this could fit the bill to sort of facilitate that discussion. So on that topic, I would just be sort of curious if anyone else has any sort of similar feeling. If you just change the way you think about the structure of the parties, does it change the way about how you feel about them? And if not, that's totally fine too. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.